Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Men TV. We've got a great show lined up for you today with Rafa Honigstein talking about the big picture and it's something that we think about a lot as Liverpool fans, isn't it? Honigstein's an athletic journalist. The Athletic are proud sponsors of the Red Men TV and you can get 50% off your yearly subscription as well as a seven-day free trial by visiting www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash Red Men TV. But without further ado, let's see what what me and Mr Honigstein got up to. I must admit, I mean, I, I love watching this Liverpool side and there are times when it's quite boring, it's quite methodical and we're passionate around the back. But, you know, as a football fan, I, you know, you don't have to follow the ball when you're in the ground. Do you? you can look at different things. And I love the way that Liverpool pull, pull teams from one side of the pitch to the other and back again and back again. And then almost 90, 80 minutes of that, and the, the other side is dead on their feet. And that, for me, is why Liverpool are so good in the last 10, 15 minutes of games. It's not because we're lucky. It's not because we're jammy. It's because we've had them running all over the place for 80 minutes and the other team's tired. And, you know, there are things that Liverpool do. And, I, and I'm sure, and you might be able to tell me whether I'm wrong on this, I'm sure Liverpool pra- practice pattern plays at times because I see the same alternating vertical runs. I see Henderson moving into the wing space so Salah to come in and a midfielder driving forwards. And it, it just feels now like they don't have to think our players anymore. They've been working together in this system for so long that almost the muscle memory knows exactly where everybody else is and knows exactly what to do. When, and, and that's the thing, isn't it? When you're in a high-pressure situation, Rafa, and you don't have to think, that's when you gain your edge. Certainly, certainly that. Um, I mean, Pete Kravitz was talking about processes. I think he probably wouldn't go as far as, as talking about patterns because there's always an opposition on the pitch which um, might not adhere to your pattern and then your your own pattern doesn't work. But I think certain processes, certain um, you know, very uh, fixed ideas of if one thing happens, the other thing happens. I mean, if Henderson makes, makes a run, it's only a good run if the other guy sees that run and then goes into the space that Henderson has vacated. And I think they have worked a lot on these things ever since Mane joined mm. and, and made it a slightly more fluid um, attack. And uh, with with the addition of Salah, of course, then they had the complete uh, trident. And uh, it's really, really difficult to defend, especially if you have at least one central midfielder joining up um, from deep positions. Wijnaldum does it probably better than any of, anyone else. And the fullbacks are putting extra pressure on, on the wide areas. So... It is a team that is extremely difficult to to defend against. And even if you take one or two players out, um, and the quality does suffer from Liverpool, I think, if uh, one of the front three rocket man isn't there, there is still enough um, to win. You know, Liverpool, 
just to reiterate, are now able to win at 85, 90%. And I think it's inevitable that you need to come to that point if you want to win um, in the Premier League because no team, not even Manchester City of last year, the year before, can be at 100% all the time. Liverpool have just reached a level where their 90% are still more than enough against almost every opposition. And that is that's a fantastic position to be in. And, and again, talking, we, we, we touched on it briefly earlier on in the show, and you mentioned that how you thought maybe Klopp's Liverpool side wouldn't change. Um, now, we've seen it consistently evolve. When, when it gets to this point where, as you mentioned, um, Liverpool are winning games at 85-90%, do you foresee... You can't, I can't foresee any wholesale changes, but there may be a, a freshen of players. Obviously, most of our players are tied down for a long period of time. And we were talking earlier on, weren't we, about how you know maybe the message sometimes needs to be refreshed or the players need to be refreshed. What do you think? Do you think Klopp's thinking ahead and he's thinking down the lineup? Maybe what will need to happen next, so some, something like what happened at Dortmund doesn't happen. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think you'll be you'll be thinking about that. So one. Um type of player that was mentioned to me when, when I went to see him just a week before the Champions League final uh, in Madrid was that they would like to have somebody who could come in um, to give Robertson a bit of a breather on the left, but who perhaps could also play further up the pitch. And the reason they, they want or wanted, but probably still want that type of player is to um, not just give one of the two guys that uh, would be out a bit of a a breathing space and rest period, but also to tell that new guy who would come in that he has a realistic chance of getting game time because that that now has almost become Liverpool's biggest problem. If they want to go someone to go somewhere and say, you know what, we want to add you to our squad, they have to think long and hard if they can back themselves playing ahead of Mane or Salah or Firmino. So you need to have players that are versatile so that you can also find spaces for them. And one of the most interesting things I found researching the book um, was that Pete Kravitz told, told me that when Coutinho left, they had to make a decision. And the decision was, A, can we compete? Can we um, compensate for his absence in different ways? You know, can we move things around um, to, to, to do that? And of course, they... Uh, found this 4-3-3 formation that has worked even better uh, than what they had before. But also the idea that adding another big star, adding another sort of big number 10 or even a, another sort of attacking player of a similar stature might have not been good for the side because those guys come with an expectation of always playing, come with um, a bit of an ego, come perhaps with their own ideas of how they want, want to play football. And in, in the words of Pete Kravitz, there's sort of a natural limit of how many of those big-type players you can have in a team before it gets very, very complicated. That, again, looking forward, is going to be, I think, a really, really interesting um, you know, dynamic. Can you, let's say, take a Timo Werner and make him the fourth attacking player on the proviso that there will be rotation? Or do you feel it would be difficult because if you buy him, then he wants to play, then who do I leave out? And these are the sort of decisions that, that Klopp and, and his team have to make. But they, they're only complicated because the team right now works so well. Mm. So it's a, 
really nice dilemma to have. And, and then, and then finally, just a little bit about yourself. And um, obviously, I know you, you've authored quite a lot of books, uh, Rafa. Um, uh, Dash Reboot being one of the most famous ones, which was absolutely fantastic. I remember reading that uh, a little while ago. Obviously, I've read Bring the Noise. You've done a Jürgen Klopp biography as well, um, amongst others. Um, how did you get started in, in journalism and, 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 and writing books? So I kind of stumbled into it. I studied law uh, in London and um, I used to go back to Munich to see friends. And uh, one of them was working in the media industry in a newspaper um, and a sort of youth supplement part of the newspaper and said, well, you always see these people in London, you know, interesting musicians, artists. Why don't you write about them? And I was like, okay, fine. I'll try that. And uh, it, uh, it worked out. And then from then um, and on, I met Ronald Reng, who's the author of the fantastic uh, book on um, Robert Enke, the German goalkeeper who sadly took his own life and who was doing the job I'm doing now, uh, working for German media in football um, in London. But he moved on to Barcelona and uh, basically inherited his job. He said to me, you know what, you like football, don't you? I was like, yes, I do. You can write a bit why don't you continue to write for the newspapers I've been working for because they don't have anyone because I'm leaving. So that was really it. Um, it was a great um, example um, of it's not what you know, it's just who you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was just lucky. I was just lucky to be, to be the right place at the right time. And then, then, I, was, then I was again lucky, I think, that uh, the interest in German football from a UK perspective, started rising along with the interest in all football, really, uh, over the last 10 years or so. And of course, it coincided with Germany being pretty good and half decent again and having also really interesting managers emerge. And that's why we ended up here talking about Jurgen Klopp. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you'll, you'll have interviewed so many people over the years, but what's your favourite interview that you've done? Who's the most interesting person that you've spoken to? It's a really interesting, uh, difficult question to answer. I mean, I I really enjoy all interviews that sort of delve deep into someone's background, someone's thinking, someone's footballing philosophy, especially. And uh, you know, speaking to someone like Ralph Rangnick for three or four hours uh, for the research of Das Reboot um, was just hugely enlightening and exciting, and it's you know stuff that you can still sort of use for your own understanding of the game all the time and it was no different talking to the people around Jürgen uh, to you know uh, people like like Watzkett Dorpen people like uh, Gundogan who played for him and is a really really smart guy and gave me lots of really interesting insights and Christian Heidelet minds as well I mean the, the list the list goes on and I was lucky again because if you're researching a success story and both Das Reboot and Jürgen himself are success stories you will come across people who had a hand in this because they are smart and they did something right. And speaking to them, it's just, it's just a dream because you can pick up things and you can learn things all the time. And that's really the most rewarding part of the job, I think, the ability to meet with people like that. Do you, um, do you, do you, have you had any ones where they've not quite gone very well or any stand out where you think... Oh, that was hard work, or that was terrible. That just didn't go. I, I annoyed them early on, and it's it's that's been a bit of a failure. 
Yeah, in football, it, it rarely happens. Uh, the good news is that I'm in a position where I can really just speak to the people I want to speak to. I'm not getting sent to, you know, to do a interview with someone who I have no personal interest in, who I think maybe is not, not an interesting interview. So it's sort of self-selected. And to that extent, chances of it being terrible are quite low. It was much worse when I was doing music interviews um, where, you know, you, you meet people that you admire or you think are very cool. And then they're just not interested in talking to you. And uh, there was one singer where I actually got up and left because she was just giving me nothing. And I was so dull and boring that I thought, if I do five more minutes of this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to kill myself. So uh, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't happen. Uh, luckily, uh, it doesn't really happen in football as much. There was one guy who didn't want to talk to me for Jürgen Klopp's book. He's the one guy that is quite, uh, slightly famous in Germany for not getting on that much with Jürgen because everyone loves Jürgen as you know um, but he said to me no I don't want to be the one guy who everyone knows doesn't like Jürgen Klopp so please uh, understand why I won't be part of the project but even he later told me that it wasn't so much about him um, on a personal level that he disagreed with he just didn't appreciate Klopp's football because he wanted to play more you know he was a kind of a uh, saw himself as a, as a playmaker uh, of sorts and uh the game was just too fr frantic for him and uh, he didn't appreciate it for that reason alone. And then Klopp didn't appreciate it, him not appreciating his game and quickly, as you know, <laughs> um, kind of felt, you know, it's not going to work between us. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, and, and then what are you most proud of in your career so far, Rafa? I think writing the books um, we just mentioned. Um, I mean, I'm proud of, of all every all and every book I've, I've written so far, but... Probably Das Rebut and, and Jürgen Klopp were the, the most accomplished ones. Um, different, uh, but at the same time, I think uh, similar in a sense that it was really the story of, as I said, of, of success and trying to figure out why that success happened. In the case of Jürgen, what made him so successful? What were his influences? What were the things he did that helped him uh, to get to the point where he was? And for German football, sort of on the wider scale, what went wrong? And how did they they make the right uh, adjustments? And it's just it's just great, first of all, for the research uh, process which you talked about, but also then for the moment where you feel okay, now I think I figured it out, and then trying to convey that and trying to tell that story to others, uh, hopefully with a view of them saying, oh yeah, now I understand too. That is just um, tremendously satisfying, and probably um, yeah, the things I'm, I'm most proud of. And, and, and on to your time right now then, uh, before we wrap it up. I think, obviously, the Athletic have come into the English football market. They've got some of the most talented writers out there now. Some personal favourites of mine. And, <laughs> including you, Rafa. Um, I mean, one of my favourites is Michael Cox. I have admired him from afar for a long time. Love reading his pieces, love reading his books. Um, but... Why did you take the job at the Athletic, and, and and what has it allowed you to do? Well, for me, it was um, a a no-brainer decision because editorially they allowed me to do basically kind of mini books. They said, you know, you can go away and do something that you're interested in, and come back four months later, not four months, four weeks later, maybe, and uh, and write that story. And that is an absolute dream for, for every writer um, to not work to, to um, the pressure of a, of a deadline, to not to be current, to not to be chasing all the time, to not to be part of that machine. I mean, football is, is a bit of a grind. You know, you have a game and then there's the next game. And if you cover it the way that football is mostly covered, it is very sort of relentless, but also at the same time, 
slightly flat because it goes from press conference to game to reaction to press conference to game. And, um, you know, having the ability to dive deeply into subjects and to do features and to go back in time and do stuff that stuff that happened in the past, it's just, it's just great. And, um, I think the sort of the, the crazier or the, you know, the more left field the stories are, the more people seem to respond to it because uh, there's a lot of amazing content out there. And in order to be different, you have to do stuff that isn't being done right now. And newspapers for many reasons can't really work in that way, the way we do. And I think it is a very, um, welcome, uh, you know, option for people to have to just get something slightly different. Um, you don't have to, you don't have to, um, you can get your sort of your football content from amazing free sources elsewhere. But, um, if you want maybe something that's a little bit off the beaten track, I think the athletic has been, has been brilliant. I must admit, I think back to you know when the Times launched their subscription service a few years ago, and they had a three hundred percent increase in subscribers when they started writing editorially. Because anybody can get the free news, and and that's not I'm not disrespecting any journalists who who work up and down the length and breadth of this country. There are some fantastic journalists in the Liverpool scene alone, and all up all over. But you're right, what you do get with The Athletic is something a little bit different. You can get your teeth into it. I'm certainly loving the, the different types of stories because for me, personally, um, football journalism in this country has become quotes from managers and players. And long gone, I long for the days where I could read a really great match report and nobody needs a match report anymore because everybody's seen the game. But that's what you get, and that's different, is you've taken some of the best writers in the country and given them the ability to write about what they want to write about. And, and that, for me, is what I'm enjoying with, with my subscription. And, and anyway...